Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more podcasts and more information on your number one news and talk station, please visit 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Use your rights. Act responsibly. Lead SA. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. All righty. You know what this means on 021-446-0567-011-8830702. We are taking your calls, whatever you want to ask the Naked Scientist. Join us as we open our lines and our eyes to learn more about our bodies and the world in which we live. Chris, good morning. Morning, Reedy. I couldn't help it, but I was eavesdropping on your conversation with Thomas. <laughs> oh, we were cooking up some nefarious activities around the Olympics. <laughs> yes, because he's travelling to London. And I hope you know Indeed. what you're doing by initiating a get-together with him. Is there a, a steakhouse around uh, your area where you can take him? <laughs> Conveniently, I live opposite a pub that uh, does very good food, so I think it could be quite a draw for Thomas. Um, but you should come too. Um, then we, th- I was saying to him, because I've got a big screen telly here next to where the studio is, so we can oh, put wow. the Olympics on on there and you can do the commentating from here, because you'll sit here and just chat a bit watching the telly and no one will know. And then we can go in the pub during the ads. <laughs> Sounds exquisite. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get on with the show then. Um, a few days ago, Chris, I had a young woman, American ballerina, Mike, uh, M- Michaela de Prince, who had a condition called vitiligo. I hope I'm saying that correctly. And then we've received an email about this. Um, Nash wants to know what kills off melanin cells in the human body uh, that causes vitiligo and how can it be stopped? Yes, um, the pronunciation is slightly different. It's vitiligo. Mm-hmm. Vitiligo. Which yeah, vitiligo. Okay. And it is an autoimmune condition. And what this means is that for some reason, and in some people, and certainly not comprehensively, usually, it's usually refined and confined to certain patches of skin, you will have an autoimmune attack on the cells that make melanin, the melanocytes, and that um, leads to a loss from that patch of skin completely of its ability to produce melanin, and as a result, you get a white patch. Now, in a white-skinned person, this often manifests as a patch of skin that looks a bit whiter than the surrounding skin because normally the surrounding skin has a basal level of tan. So just incidental exposure to the sun brings up the melanin level in the skin a little bit, and therefore this patch shows. But when the person goes out and gets more suntanned, mm-hmm. they have to be very careful with that patch because it won't be able to make any melanin. It'll be very sensitive to UV, and it will easily burn. But also, as the tone of melanin in the surrounding skin goes up, then, then the stark contrast between the pale bit and the dark bit gets more and more apparent. Now, in dark skin, um, obviously, if you've got a constitutively high level of melanin production, then there will be an area which is white, and it really stands out if, if you see this in someone's gossip. Now, this family of disorders, auto, uh, autoimmune disorders, they're, they're all linked together. Um, things like diabetes is an autoimmune disorder, thyroid disease is an autoimmune dis- disorder. Mm-hmm. For some reason, there is a loss of regulation and recognition of self 
the immune system should normally recognize what is you and ignore it. And for some reason, in certain circumstances and in certain parts of the body, this regulatory process fails and the immune system then starts attacking. And there's usually one target in a certain tissue that it, it'll go for because the immune response is very specific. Mm. So it'll pick on one particular chemical marker that are displayed by certain types of cells and the immune cells come in and kill those cells and then the, the, the function of those cells is lost. Okay. Nash, thank you very much for that question. I hope you've got your answers. Let's go to Ellen in Dube. Hi, Ellen. Hi, Rudy. Hi, Chris. Mm. I just want to know, does pork uh, cause or aggravate sore throat? Oh, I've heard that before. I don't know if it was an urban legend or if there's any truth. Don't eat pork. Your throat would be so- will be sore. I eat it and I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't come across that one, actually, Ellen. No. Um, I have a bit of a sore throat right now, but uh, I haven't been eating any pork. Um, so, no, I, I don't think that it's it's linked okay. if anyone knows better do please tell me yeah i can't remember where these stories emanated from but in the townships when we were growing up there were people who claimed that they can't eat pork because it makes their throat uh, sore so if anyone knows anything about it please uh let us know let's go to nick in bedford view hi hi um i just wanted to know i've, I've i'm quite a movie buff so i just wanted to know if it's true how does fire look in uh zero gravity in zero wow, that's an excellent question. Yes. So what would happen if I uh, took a match and struck it on the International Space Station? Um, maybe maybe what, what would you speculate would happen to a match lit or aboard the International Space Station, Nick? Well, um, obviously, uh, I've seen in, in, in movies and that, uh, I don't know if it's true, but apparently it looks like, like yellow bubbles or yellow like ball bubbles, if you will. Um, I don't know if that's true. Yeah, I think you've pretty much done a better job of answering your question than I could. <laughs> um, what happens when we light a match or light a fire under the effect of gravity is that the fire is a chemical reaction which produces a lot of heat. A lot of that heat is passed into the surrounding air, causing it to expand. So you have a ball of gas which then expands, and it, when it expands, it becomes less dense, so it wants to rise, because the air around it is more dense and pushes down underneath it and displaces it upwards. That's why hot air rises, because it's less dense. Now, that has the effect of carrying away the waste products of combustion, the carbon dioxide and the carbon particles, and replacing it with fresh air, rich in oxygen, so that the next bit of burning can occur. Now, if you're in zero gravity, there is no up and down. Actually, I should qualify that. If you're in microgravity, because there's nowhere to get zero gravity, so if you're in orbit in, say, microgravity, there is no up or down, because you're in free fall. Mm. And therefore, uh, when the products of combustion form around the, say, match head, if you've struck a match, then they don't actually have an upwards or a downwards, because there's no gradient, like there is on Earth, with more dense and less dense things to move things around. So as a result, the products of combustion will just expand outwards, like a ball, around the thing that's burning, and this will cut off the supply of oxygen because there's no fresh air coming in from below like there would be normally, and as a result, the fire goes out. And I think NASA were very worried about fires and things before they first started sending stuff into space, and experiments showed that actually this is not something to worry about so much because um, the, the fires don't just rage out of control for the very reason we've outlined. So you just get this ball of, of, of conflagration which then just goes out because it chokes itself off. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much, uh, Nick, for a lovely, lovely question. Let's move on to Kevin. Kevin, you are calling us from Midrand. Hi. Good day. Um, I just had a thought when uh, Chip was talking about um, melanin just now. 
Um, two quick ones to follow on from that. And one is about albinos who just suddenly in Congo or some countries in Africa just suddenly get born bright pink. No melanin at all, but they've got dark skinned uh, parents. And then uh, the other question I wanted to ask was, um, when you, when you age, uh, you get on after about 40, 50, I think it is plus, um, certain persons noticed that I, and I did, that you suddenly get these little dark spots on your skin as a European. And I just wondered what does it actually initiate because it's like after 45, 50, some people get much older up to 80 and they've got these spots growing on your skin. What causes that? And then my main question was that what is going to happen with these hybrid hydrogen cars if they take water from the earth and split it into hydrogen, two parts, oxygen, one, and mm-hmm. we start driving all these cars around instead of fuel? What's going <laughs> Okay, Chris? Right. Okay, well, let's look at the melanin thing first. With albinism, rather than the immune system damaging the cells that make the melanin pigment, in someone who is an albino, they have inherited a change in their genetic material which stops one of the genes which from making a product which is critical for the synthesis of melanin. So it's a little bit like if you've got a production line and someone's not working on the production line, then all the things build up ahead of where that person should be doing their job and all the people downstream on the production line have got nothing to do because nothing's coming through, so no products get made. And as a result, they have perfectly healthy melanocytes, but they don't have um, any melanin in them, and so they can't put any melanin in their skin or in their eyes. And this is a big problem because at the back of your eye, you have a layer of melanin called the retinal pigment epithelium. Mm -hmm. And it does a very important job of soaking up stray light that goes into the eye. Um, And if you don't have that, then the light can ricochet around inside your eyeball and it stimulates lots of photoreceptors that it shouldn't. And this can cause blurring of vision, make it quite blinding for people. So people who have albinism not only are at risk of getting skin cancer because their skin can't defend itself against the sun, but also they can have eye problems. Mm. And also the connections, the nerve connections that uh, carry signals from one eye to the other side of the brain so that you can line up your visual fields properly. Some of those nerve fibers may not cross completely correctly where the fibers should cross over in something called the optic chiasm. And so there are other reasons why people can struggle with their vision as well. So that's a very different thing than vitiligo, which is an immune problem. Uh, those spots and patches of pigmentation on the skin are just a manifestation of age. I'm not exactly sure why they happen. Um, and then the main question that Kevin asked was about hydrogen cars. Mm. Um, we actually think that this is the way to go in future. There's a huge amount of water on Earth, um, something like one and a half billion cubic kilometres of water on Earth. And when we uh, take some water and pass electricity through it, then you can split it into hydrogen and oxygen. And at a basic level, that's effectively what you can do to make hydrogen as a fuel, although there are other ways and more uh, clever ways of doing it. You then feed that hydrogen into a fuel cell, which is a special catalytic reacting vessel that recombines the, uh, the hydrogen with oxygen, and the product is water. So you have basically returned the water that you started with as water vapor, steam, and you have extracted the energy from it in the process, and it's very energy dense, but you haven't made any smutty sooty pollution which a normal combustion engine would so we regard this as as much better as a way of powering vehicles and you can make the hydrogen in the first place by splitting water using energy electricity that you've used or obtained in an environmentally friendly way so for instance from solar power or um perish the thought nuclear power because nuclear power is carbon neutral you don't have to burn a fossil fuel to make any electricity for that
Thank you very much. Okay, let's go to, uh, is it Rian? Rian in Menlin. I think we've had this one before, but uh, yeah, carry on. Hi, Reedy and Chris. Mm. Um, The debate about dark matter, just a question. Most stars that we see have been burning for billions of years, losing billions of tons of their own matter in the burning process. That you cannot see because it's in transit in space. We are looking at some stars that are billions of light years away. Surely there's mass for that uh, the particles that we see that is so far away, and there's mass from us to that star. Surely that can account for a massive amount of so-called matter that we cannot see. Hello, Rian. Um, yes, let's just sort of back up slightly. The, the point that you're making, I guess, just to make sure I've got my, my facts right. So you're referring to the fact that the universe exists and in it is matter, the mm-hmm. kind of material we're made from, and when you work out how much the universe must weigh, we account, our, our matter, accounts for only about 5%. And then when you look at the structure of the universe and ask why galaxies spinning and organise the way they are, this tells you there must be enormous amounts of, of mass, which we can't see, in the middle of and around the peripheries of these galaxies. And that, to account for the structures and shapes of them, uh, and we, we call that dark matter because we can't see, we can't it. see it, that takes our number to about seven, uh, 25%. So we've, we can only therefore account for about 25% of all of the mass that must be in the universe. So what about the other 75%? And that's the dark energy. Um, so dark matter isn't is the stuff that we can't see it's the stuff that must be there we infer its existence because of the structure and shape of galaxies and the way things behave in space but at the moment we've no way to probe it to work out exactly what it is and he's right that mm. when stars burn they lose mass our own sun is throwing away about five six seven million tons of mass every second and when i say throwing away this is not material going off into space it's because of the burning process as it fuses hydrogen to make helium then in that process it's releasing a lot of energy and as einstein said e energy equals m mass times the speed of light c squared so if it gives out energy then the star has lost energy and if the e goes down Mm. because the speed of light squared c squared stays the same then the mass must go down to balance the equation so that's why our sun is losing up to eight million tons a second very fascinating uh question there rian thank you very much for the call let's go to leslie leslie in pretoria hi ready my son's got a question he wants to know how come does the the sea not soak into the sand below it (laughs) very good question um I, th- I think the reason for this is geology, um, that the the bottom of the sea is, lo- there is some sand, obviously, but also underneath that uh, is rock and crust and their mantle material, and this is all under huge pressure. And in order for water to be driven in amongst the rocks, you need even higher pressures, and the pressure underneath the sea is already extremely high. So basically, it would go in if there was space for it, but the pressure is so high that the water, there's, there's nothing to drive the water any further in because the pressure isn't sufficiently high pushing the water in, even under its own huge mass. Okay, Leslie? Tell your son to phone us next time. We like to hear from the kiddies, okay? (laughs) Thank you very much. That's Leslie in Pretoria. Uh, Let's go to Zandi in Midrand. Hi. Hi, Zandi. No, you're Zandi. (laughs) I'm Ridi. Hi, Ridi. Hello. Um, I just need to know about windowlin. You know, of now late when I'm cooking in my kitchen, I use windowlin to kill all the flies. 
You know, it's so comfortable. It's unlike doom that will choke you and all that. But I just need to know, what is it that actually kills the flies? In the kitchen. Okay, so window cleaning detergent. Um, okay. I, I don't. Uh, I don't know what is in window lean. I know I've used it, but I, I'd never actually looked. But I would guess, based on what it does, it's a detergent solution. And I think two things probably happen uh, because it's a detergent solution. Then it's going to be very good at dissolving in oily things. And I, I suspect that what it does is it goes into the fly's body, and the detergent breaks down a lot of the cells inside the fly's body. I think that's probably the first thing. Mm. Uh, I think also um, it probably, because it's got a very low surface tension, um, what that means is it's less sticky than the tiny tubes along the side of the fly that it uses to breathe. It has these little structures called spiracles and it pulls air by pumping its body in and out. It's pulling air into these tubes along the sides of its body, which is how it breathes. And water won't normally be able to go in there very easily because the droplets of water are going to have to be so tiny to get in that the, the droplets will have become bigger than, than that size just because water is sticky. And I suspect that if you spray window lean on the fly, that what will happen is that because there's no surface tension or much less surface tension because it's a detergent, then mm. the water will form much smaller droplets which will get into the fly's respiratory system more easily and clog it up and then the fly can't breathe. And uh, that won't be terribly good for it either. Um, I'm not sure if there's also some vinegary type stuff in window lean. So the pH, the, the, the level of acidity may be quite low and that may also have a deleterious effect on the fly. That's more speculative though. I think the first two mm. um, are, are much more likely. Okay, PJ in Parole. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I have a problem. I'm 72 years old, suffering from slight hypertension, but under medication, the Zinopril, I find that the diastolic pressure remains pretty good at about 85, but the systole goes up to 140, and also there's a slowing of the heart rate. Is it normal as you get older that because I believe normal is 120 over 80, but I've been informed that it was published in the British magazine that 130 over 90 is considered normal, probably an average from the world being under stress. Why does the diastolic remain pretty good and yet the systolic inevitably goes up? Is this a sign of old age or a, or a limitation of the flow of blood through the, through the system? Okay. Okay, so when your heart beats, um, you are squeezing blood out of a, a bag, a muscular bag, your heart, into the arterial tree. And when that blood goes in, it then takes up some space, which is why the pressure goes up to the systolic number. And the blood then runs away through all the tissues. And this is the diastolic phase, when the heart is not beating. And the blood vessels rebound or return to where they normally would want to be. So you can determine what those two numbers are by how constricted the vessels are in the first place and how stretchy they are. So as you get older, the vessels tend to become a little bit stiffer. So when you put the blood in, the vessels don't stretch to accommodate the extra blood quite so well, so the pressures tend to be higher to start with. That's the first point. Uh, the second one is that the other thing that will affect blood pressure isn't just how stiff the blood vessels are, but also how hard your heart beats and how much blood it ejects into the blood vessels. Because if you put more blood out with each beat, then you can beat less often, but you also will get a higher pressure when you put that bigger volume of blood into the blood vessels. So all these things come together to lead to what we call mean arterial pressure. And it's 
very difficult to, to, to explain exactly why you would arrive at the numbers that we do arrive at, and I don't think people precisely understand why you get a systolic of that and a diastolic of that, but it's down to how much blood you're ejecting with each beat, how hard, therefore, the heart is working, how stiff the blood vessels are, and also the tone, in other words, how, how constricted the vessels are altogether because the nervous system when you get stressed will make the vessels close down a little bit and this also affects the pressure and when you put all of those factors together that gives you the result that we see the systolic the upper number how high the pressure is when the heart beats versus the diastolic how high the pressure is when the heart is relaxed and refilling with blood Chris, I've got an email here. As somebody wants to know what actually happens when a baby is born prematurely. Is it that that baby has been is dis is in distress and wants to come out, or there's something in the mother's uh, body that is pushing the, the the baby out? A range of things can make babies come a bit early. One of them is infection. And sometimes if a mother has an infection, like um, herpes simplex infection, for example, the cold sore virus, other things can do this as well, of course. This can lead to the infection tracking up to affect the lining of the uterus, the wall, sorry, the, the um, membranes that surround the baby, and you can get premature rupture of the membrane. And this is uh, sometimes a trick that midwives use to induce a baby to come a bit early if the mum's having a problem or the baby's having a problem. So rupturing the membranes or irritating the lining around the baby can sometimes trigger the baby to want to come out early. It seems to put the birth process into, into action. Also, sometimes, sadly, if babies are unwell or have died inside the mum, then that can trigger them to come out too early. And sometimes it's down to size. Uh, in some cases, you can get a very big baby because it grows very quickly and, and puts on more weight than it should. And this can be associated with, say, um, maternal diabetes. Mm. And under those circumstances, sometimes babies will have to come early um, because they've stretched, they, maybe it's a uterine stretch phenomenon or something like that. But when a baby does come early, it's not uh, necessarily a bad thing. Um, sometimes it's better for a baby to come out rather than stay in and not grow properly. So doctors are always very interested in whether a baby is growing along the right trajectory when it's inside its mum, because if the growth slows down, something is wrong, and they will often induce an early uh, delivery because the baby's much better off getting it out and getting it properly fed and developing normally rather than staying inside where things clearly aren't right. Yes. And once babies go beyond about 30... 32, 33 weeks, um, normally the outcomes are really, really good. From 30 weeks, they've got all the antibodies from their mum coming into their bloodstream, which is good, and once they go beyond about 34 weeks, their lungs are pretty well developed, so they're not going to have too many health problems. When they're below those ages, they're quite small, which makes them more vulnerable, and their lungs are not very well developed, and they also don't have any surfactant. This is a special chemical that lowers the um, stickiness or the surface tension of water in the tiny sacs in the lungs, and this means that in tiny babies that don't have this, when they try and breathe, they can't inflate their lungs properly mm. because the tiny air sacs are trying to collapse all the time because the water in them is so sticky, it, it collapses the lungs. And what they do in those circumstances is they give the mum a dose of steroid, dexamethasone usually, and this triggers or switches on the genetic trigger in the baby to make it make the surfactant molecules so when they then induce the delivery of the baby, the lungs stay healthy afterwards. Lovely. Thank you, Chris. We chat to you again next week. Brilliant. Thanks, Reedy. Have a good weekend, Ta -ta. everybody. Bye-bye. See you soon. And that conversation with the Naked Scientist will be available as a podcast. But you can get more uh, about the Naked Scientists. Visit their website at www.thenakedscientists.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. 
the nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.